A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. From my own clinical work, I find quite interesting that when someone comes to me for treatment of insomnia or other mood disorders, I often check their sleep quality, how they sleep. And sometimes they will mention themselves have some kind of sleep symptoms that out of the scope of insomnia. Or they will tell me that either their spouse or their parents actually snore heavily, quite loudly for years. And I often tell them, well, other than our treatment to you for whatever your uh, major complaint is, I think we need to consider either for you, your spouse, or your parents to have a sleep study done, which is a testing in a sleep center. And they often ask me, what is a sleep study? What is sleep testing? So today, we have Dr. Kosla to really share with us what it's like to have a sleep test, a sleep study done. And during COVID, what many sleep centers, especially their sleep center, have done to really protect their staff and the patient's safety. Dr. Kosla also shared different types of sleep disorders and how sleep study can really help with the process of diagnosis. Also, what are some appropriate treatment for certain sleep disorders once you get the diagnosis through a sleep study, for example, sleep apnea, and in their center, how she follow up with patients through telehealth. So if you or your family are struggling with sleep disorder or are waiting to get sleep study done, but because COVID, you are encountering some difficulties, hopefully this episode can give you some ideas what it may look like right now and to help you reduce your anxieties about visiting a sleep center under COVID. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep. I'm your host, Ishan. Welcome, Dr. Kosla. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm really happy to have you here. Um, I have quite a lot of questions for you. So I know you're the medical director at North Dakota Center for Sleep. And so I'm curious what, um, what you do there, what's your specialty um, locally in the sleep center? Sure. So I am a pulmonologist. My, I did a fellowship in pulmonary critical care and sleep, uh, but now I do 100% sleep medicine. So I see clinic patients and we do sleep testing both at home and in the lab. And we take care of um, any, any sleep disorder, not just sleep apnea. We take care of insomnia and restless leg syndrome and narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, so we we take care of any sleep concern that somebody may have. Oh, that's great. So sounds like a very wide scope. You can see a lot <laughs> of sleep disorders there. 
Well, and you know what I've always found really interesting is that, you know, I think sleep is a great equalizer. No matter who we are, whether we are educated or not, or wealthy or not, you know, we we all need sleep. And so it's something that, you know, we really can't afford to ignore. And so many of us have undiagnosed sleep disorders, or we have this attitude of, well, that's as good as it's going to get, and I need to accept that. Yes, exactly. And also, as a psychologist myself, I find sleep topic is such a good uh, way in for other mental challenges. And people love to talk about sleep and are okay with sleep. There are less stigma attached to that. And then when we start talking about sleep and treating sleep, and many other things can slowly happen. What a great, you're right. What a great viewpoint. You're exactly right. You know, and why is that? We, we do have this mental health stigma. And I think you're right. There's such overlap between our mental health and our sleep. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really glad that you can use that to open, open the door and engage your patient that way. Do you find that they, it makes them um, more willing to share with you? Yeah, more willing for me. I think it's make them more willing to share with me. And they start realizing, oh, seeing a therapist, seeing a psychologist, and it's not that scary. And actually, oh, my sleep symptom, especially insomnia, for me to treat, my insomnia can get better. And then in the process, I realize, oh, actually, I'm anxious. Or actually, I feel sad often. There may be some other things. Then I think they, it's just a higher level of acceptance to be willing to face whatever the deep challenge they have. Well, isn't that interesting? You know, my, my, I joke about this a lot, but um, in our sleep clinic, we go through a lot of Kleenex. And my friends make fun of me because <laughs> why do you make your patients cry? And I, and I said, well, you know, it's not, I think so much of like you talked about with insomnia is for some reason, I think we have been programmed to believe that if you have insomnia, you need a prescription for a pill and that's it. And really, I think we kind of owe it to our patients to try to figure it out a little bit more. And so, I don't know, you know, you kind of hear a lot of childhood sexual trauma and you hear a lot of marital issues and you hear a lot of the other things that are contributing to insomnia. And then when people have this, I mean, I suppose it's, it's kind of like a safe space to talk about it. You can see that they start connecting the dots and they realize that, oh, this is why I'm not sleeping. And yeah, I, I see why you think I need to go see a therapist. I found it interesting that you said that people are somewhat reluctant to see you. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder if we should, that's something that we probably share, that a lot of people that are in sleep clinic are there because their wives or husbands have sent them and they really don't want to be there and they really don't want to have a sleep test and they really don't want to <laughs> wear a sleep <laughs> But then right. if you can pull that out like you do with your patients and you show them how the thing that really bothers them might be linked to something that they are a little bit uncomfortable talking about and then you lead them and you connect them to to that. And, and I think that's very impactful. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we definitely share some of this experience and we definitely see how good people are at avoiding things. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And I also know a lot of different sleep disorders other than insomnia, like narcolepsy, it can really harm or impact our uh, quality of life. Isn't it amazing? Narcolepsy is such a tough one. You know, I think people... I, you know, for, for lay people, I think a lot of people think it's funny, right? It's comical, mm-hmm. like the guy on TV who falls asleep in a soup and mm-hmm. people think it's really funny and they don't realize how debilitating this can be. And it's more than just falling asleep, right? There's mm-hmm. so much more to it. I mean, think about how that impacts you day to day when you've had a night or two of not sleeping well and you're exhausted and you can't think the next day. Right. Imagine if that's your every day. Yeah. And then trying to articulate that to your family and your friends and people who don't understand and who who think that you're lazy or that you just why don't you just go to bed earlier and you're just spending too much time on your phone and they and they don't get it. And I think that is one of the hardest things I think for our patients is that if you have a diagnosis like cancer, for example, Everybody understands that and everybody kind of gets that it's not your fault and this is a horrible thing that happened to you. Uh, And and when you deal with something like a sleep disorder, I think there's not that same understanding. I mean, I'm not equating the two by any stretch, but there is still that idea of people have sleep disorders that profoundly impact their day-to-day and yet so many people assume that they're lazy or they're doing it to themselves, or they're just staying up too late, and that's why they're sleepy without recognizing that there may be a true underlying sleep disorder, that no matter how much they sleep, they still don't feel rested. Right, exactly. I think that's such an important point for a lot of people to know that this layer of stress, this pressure, they not only add to themselves, they're confused, what's going on with me? Is there something wrong with me? Am I just lazy? And there's so many like external stress from uh, from people around them. I know people who are diagnosed with sleep disorders and uh, lost their lovers, their partners, and uh, people around them just don't understand, think they are weird. Um, and some of them have to quit their their job and cannot finish their school. It's quite challenging. It could be really severe. It really can. And and sometimes even, I remember this nurse years and years and years ago, um, she always worked nights. And I knew her from my pulmonary days and critical care days. And she had narcolepsy. And it was one of those things that it, it, it took her a long time to get a diagnosis. And um, she managed it very well. And she just chose to be a night shift worker because that worked better for her. And she was very successful at it. And so I think with the right support and the right treatment, yes, you know, people can have these very full functional lives, but that social support is so important. So her husband was very, very, very supportive of her. And I think that made a huge difference for her and her and her outcome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If people uh, we love, people around us really understand or try to understand and try to learn how to support us, how to support patients who are struggling with some kind of sleep disorders, that's kind of definitely, even psychologically, I think that makes a huge difference for sure. Yeah, and I think the same even goes with CPAP. So spouses who accept the CPAP 
I think, you know, and, and they're very encouraging. So one of the complaints we get in clinic all the time is, oh, you know, CPAP just isn't sexy. I don't want to wear this. <laughs> it comes up all the time. And, you know, and, and you try to, you try to switch it, you know, you try to say, well, but it's a lot sexier than like the gasping and choking. And, and if this person really cares for you, right? It's not mm-hmm. going to, you know, it's not going to be that big a deal. And I know, you know, that if you look at somebody that you care about, you feel better knowing that they're on a CPAP, right? right. And, and so it's just one of those, I had one, I had one lady years ago now, she um, had gone through a divorce and she was dating and she came into clinic and she's like, so listen, my boyfriend is going to spend the night for the first time. She said, what do you think I should do with my CPAP? And I said, well, you know, I want you to wear your CPAP every time you sleep, right? Mm -hmm. So I want you to wear it, but ultimately you have to decide what you want to do. And so she really thought about it and she put her CPAP away and her boyfriend came over to spend the night. And the first thing that he did was unpack his CPAP. And then she (laughs) looked at it and she said, great. And so she unpacked her CPAP. (laughs) And they actually, they wound up getting married. It was such a lovely story. (laughs) Wow, that's so sweet. Such a great (laughs) example. (laughs) So yes, they were both very supportive of each other. Uh, And so I thought that was really kind of cute. She was very excited to tell me about that next time we met. Yeah, yeah. So that CPAP, I know it's type of treatment. And you mentioned sometimes it takes a very long time for people to get diagnosed, get the right treatment. And some guests I interviewed on my podcast before, they had similar problem, took their, took them like years, like some of them uh, around 10 years or more than 10 years to get, to get a diagnose. Mm-hmm. And so I know one common way to be diagnosed with sleep apnea, for example, is sleep testing and uh, to to be in the lab or there are other ways, right? What, mm-hmm. What's the barrier for people to get diagnosed? You know, I think so much of it depends on whether it's on your radar or not. So if what we've seen is that especially as women, women can be underdiagnosed because we don't necessarily have the same symptoms as men. You know, the guys all like they read the book, right? So Mm -hmm. they gasp and choke and turn blue and their bed partner says, honey, you need to go in. Mm -hmm. Whereas for women, we sometimes are a little bit more subtle and we have more apnea maybe in, you know, later in the night when our bed partners are asleep. And, and maybe we have insomnia rather than hypersomnolence. And so a lot of the time as women, we get treated for the hypertension and the depression um, rather than the sleep apnea that might explain all of it. And so I think that has been, you know, you have to be able to think of it before you can diagnose it. Um, the other limitation I think has been testing, so you're right. We've always had this in-lab test, which is a great test, but it is, you know, it's a lot of wires and you have to come in and be away from your family and there's mm-hmm. cost associated with it. Um, there's a home sleep apnea test that, w- which is kind of nice that you can do it at home. Uh, so if you ask the question, is a home sleep apnea test as good as an in-lab study? The answer is no. Mm. But if you ask the question, is home sleep apnea testing good enough for regular obstructive sleep apnea, mm-hmm. 
The answer is yes, with, a, with an asterisk, right? So if we, if we catch it at home, great. But most of the tests that we use at home don't, um, they can't tell if you're awake or asleep. And so then you won't have sleep apnea if you are awake. And so then the numbers get watered down. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do is, you know, we, so forever, we have really been trying to um, show people that sleep is really, really important, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's been this cultural shift, I think, where uh, we used to be very proud of staying up all night, right? It was this badge of <laughs> honor. Yeah. And now people are really making it... Um, this cool thing that, hey, this is my eye mask and I'm going to go to bed now and this is my bedroom and look how great it is for sleep. They're really ma- making that more important, which I love. <laughs> They've made it very mm-hmm. glamorous now to just <laughs> go to sleep. Um, and so part of that, I think, is that we have this heightened awareness of the importance of sleep and I think we owe it to our patients to make it easier to get tested. So a lot of testing is in the home now. Uh, one thing that we have been trying to do is make it even more accessible. You know, mm. one of the bottlenecks is, well, you have to go to your doctor and you have to get a referral and you have to do this and you have to do that. <laughs> so, right. you know, people get tired, mm-hmm. right? They don't want to make 10 trips to do one thing. And so we're trying to figure out how we can improve sleep health. And so we know from various studies that 80% of sleep apnea is undiagnosed. I mean, that's huge. That's a very high number. <laughs> it's very high. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of the time people are like, yeah, I probably have sleep apnea, but I don't want to wear CPAP and I don't really care. And so I think it's a matter of showing them that, well, sleep apnea actually is an important thing. It's more than just snoring right? And these are the things that can happen to you. And how can we make it easier for you? You know, treatment doesn't have to be a CPAP, right? There's lots of ways we can treat sleep apnea. Let's find something that works for you, right? Let's try to figure it out. So if you look at, and this is something that we're, you know, everyone's talking about, but there Mm -hmm. hasn't been really good data yet. But if you look at the patients in New York with COVID, Mm -hmm. the top three uh, populations of people who didn't do well, diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. That's kind of the trifecta of obstructive sleep apnea. Mm. And if you if you factor in 80% of those are probably undiagnosed, right? Mm-hmm. Is sleep apnea playing a role in why people aren't doing well? I mean, we know sleep's important for our immune system. We know that sleep apnea has this inflammatory component right? So is this part of it? So so then of course we bring it back to our family members, right? And so my mom's on a CPAP and I'm very, (laughs) very careful to make Mm. sure that she stays healthy. And, you know, my, my brother delivers groceries to her. My mom and my brother both live in Canada where I'm, where I'm from. Um, and, And my mom's a family practice doctor and I've been teaching her how to do telemedicine because I don't really want her to go physically see patients. And you know, oh, so we're, like, mom, make sure you clean your CPAP. Mom, make sure you wash your hands before you touch your CPAP. You know, like all of these things, right? right. And so we're, we're trying to do that to our patients too. You know, with COVID, we've had to shut down the lab. Mm. And, and, and so this has been really hard because we know that sleep apnea is really, really important to diagnose and treat. 
but we also want to keep patients and our staff safe. So it's kind of funny. We've done a crazy amount of, of things to try to do that. Um, and if I showed you all of the documentation and all of the plans that we've had, you would, you would laugh <laughs> because it's, it's really, we've got so many different versions because things change all the time. Right. right. So I'll send out an update, you know, to my colleagues and I swear as soon as I hit send, some other article will pop up. Oh, no. <laughs> and so now we, we have, so I, I wear different hats in my life. So I've got my, my clinic hat in Fargo, but then I'm also a medical advisor for a larger um, company called Medbridge Healthcare and they do sleep testing across the country. And so then we're having to look at, you know, the lab in New York, for example, and in North Carolina, and in the Dakotas, and in Minnesota, and in Iowa. Like what, you know, what can we do differently? And how do we figure this out overall as a company to keep everybody safe when there's so much variability, you know, in the region? So we, we kind of always go back to, okay, would I put my mom in the lab? right? As a patient mm -hmm. or as a tech. And so we have PPE for our techs. We screen our patients twice. We screen our staff. <laughs> we wow. have, we, have, we took, so our labs used to be really, really pretty, you know, like <laughs> really pretty. They look like hotel rooms, just beautiful right. labs. Uh -huh. We took all of that sort of pretty stuff out, like oh. all the little, like the clocks and the, you know, the little decorative things. We took it all out because we didn't want that to be a source of infection. Uh, and then we're really picky about who gets into the lab. Uh, and we look, we, <laughs> we have this ability. Uh, there's a website that lets you look at coronavirus per county. Uh, yeah. And then you can look to see whether it's going up or going down uh, and whether it's fast or slow or whatever. And so then we kind of make a plan for that lab in that county according to what's happening. And then wow. we have these boxes that we invested in, these um, UV boxes. And so then our techs can uh, disinfect their phones and their keys, you know, whatever. And the rooms are all swept down. And, and the, uh, we have mattress covers that are wipeable and pillowcases that are wipeable and you know, all of these things. And we have viral filters in there and we have closed circuits. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> all of these things that we're, we're trying to come up with just to keep people safe. Uh, and, and also we're just not, you know, we're, we're converting as many people to home testing as we can. We're using disposable equipment. I mean, this whole thing is, has really upended our, our, our sleep world. And yeah. so we still feel this obligation, right? Like you still uh -huh. have to take care of your patients and you still right. have to protect your staff. And if we're going to be dealing with this for 18 months, we better figure out how to do it well. Yeah, that's amazing. A lot of detailed, really details you all have to manage and pay attention to, especially when it's like nationwide, different mm -hmm. locations. That's a lot of work. But at the same time, uh, I think as potential patients, when they're hearing all these steps, when they can see all these changes, they do feel safer. I hope so because you know that's our goal. That so so at first the easy thing to do was just say, oh, we got to shut everything down. And I was mm -hmm. talking to a friend of mine, and he he made me look at it differently. So he had a patient who was young-ish, right, sort of mid forties, I think, or something, who was supposed to come in for sleep study, 
And because of COVID, he didn't get to come in. He didn't get to come in. He didn't get to come in. He got delayed, delayed, delayed. And when he finally came, um, his oxygen level was so low, they sent him to the ICU. Oh, wow. And so, and so he was upset because, you know, he's saying, you guys were not, you know, this is not right either. Mm. And I said, well, you're right. It's not right. So we have to figure out who, you know, we have to sort of do that assessment of it's really important for this guy to get in, whereas this guy can probably wait, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. this guy, we can start on CPAP without a test, um, but I don't know, Right. Right. We're doing all telemedicine, for example. Like we just shut down our clinic and I see patients, you know, via telemedicine now. And so that's been a change. I mean, I've done telemedicine for 10 years, but I've never been able to do it in someone's home. We always did it from our clinic to someone else's clinic, right? Mm. And so this is, it's familiar, but it's still different when you have, have it in patients' homes. Uh, so that's been interesting, you know, right. and I think above all, we all just, you know, you have to do what's right for your patient. Like that's all it, that's what it comes down to. You just have to do right by your patient. Yeah. And because sleep apnea or different sleep disorders can still be very um, severe and can lead to like really bad health consequences. So that's another level of um, safety. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, I mean, you don't want sleep apnea. You're right. It, it does cause you know, stroke and high blood pressure and diabetes and memory problems and all of that. So it is really important to treat. So when you, you know, on paper, when the CDC says, okay, well, this is an essential service and this is not an essential service. I mean, I I get it. You know, getting your, your toenail removed is probably not super emergent and having your heart attack, that's emergent. That's really, really clear. But I think what's less clear is this sort of middle ground that, okay, today your sleep apnea is probably not going to kill you. But mm-hmm. if we wait two years, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we probably that's not great either. And so there has to be middle ground. And how can we do this safely for everybody involved? I think that's a huge concern. And it's definitely not sleep only. I mean, what about your practice? Are you seeing telemedicine patients? Yeah. So my practice is all like, a, a, we are therapists. So we have switched mostly, I would say, to telehealth. Um, but for high risk patients, like for patients have um, so uh, suicidal ideation or even intentions or some kind of uh, plans, we think they're in danger. We are trying to still see them face to face with masks on. With uh, I tell my all my therapists have to we have to have certain regulations to make sure everyone's safe. So um, we are trying to wipe the whole office every day. All that. So definitely, I think it's a uh, it's a adjustment for all of us us uh, across different settings. Isn't it funny too that, yeah. that how your office changes? So even the week before we finally shut down mm-hmm. uh, our clinic, we didn't let anybody sit in the waiting room. We'd mm-hmm. make them wait in the car and we didn't let like other people come to the appointment. <laughs> it was just, and we, and my clinic is small. 
And it's hard to get six feet between oh. my chair and the patient where the patient sits. But we did try to move everything as far as we can mm-hmm. without it being so obvious that the, you know, like <laughs> shouting across the room at somebody. But um, but it's the things I think that you you know we've done forever. You know I've been there for eleven years. You know, and you get used to the way things are, and then I, I think it is important to look at it and say, okay, well, hang on, why do we need this? Like we got rid of all our magazines in the waiting room, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, we probably don't need those. (laughs) That's probably a good thing. We don't have a candy dish anymore. You know, we used to have coffee for our patients and, and that sort of thing. So we've kind of gotten rid of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is very interesting. I hear stories from my colleagues. They are actually changing their office. They're totally switching offices because their old office is too small to keep six feet. So they oh, are actually wow. moving, like, uh, you know, try to rent a new office can be a little bit larger. And for me, myself, I try to have a couple therapy with, you know, multiple people in the session together. So all of us, like at least three of us, sometimes family therapy has more people. We all have to wear facial masks, talk to each other, um, keep a certain distance, be very cautious, no handshaking anymore for one to two hours. Sometimes a session goes really long. It's very, very uncomfortable. (laughs) So I bet that is hard then because pe- people read your facial cues. Right. So is has you, have you found that that's been a challenge wearing a mask? Definitely. And uh, it's harder for me to read their facial cues too, especially as a, as a provider for therapy. I, I want to know what, what's going on and they're, they're weird. They're or subtle dynamic between couples, within a family. So I would say definitely it brings more challenges. Um, And I'm still trying to get used to how to just uh, get enough information from their eyes, from their body gestures (laughs) in session. It's hard though. You know, that was one thing that I was, what I'm imagining, you know, because some of our patients have not wanted to do telemedicine. And Mm -hmm. so we're trying to figure out, well, when will we open the office again? And I'll, you know, we'll probably still do telemedicine and then have an in-person person, person maybe at like nine, you know, and then Mm -hmm. do two telemed patients and then have another person come at like 11 so that we're separating them. But then I also was thinking about, well, you know, part of what I do when I evaluate them is I look at their, you know, I have them open up their mouth and I look at the back of their throat. Mm. So for me, I've actually been able to get that really well for not always, but pretty well with telemedicine. Uh, And so, and it's funny in some respects because I'm trying to guide people to show me the back of their throat through their camera phone. Uh-huh. And so I've looked at, I've looked at a lot of ceilings. I've looked at a <laughs> lot of noses, <laughs> a lot, you know, and so that's been interesting. I have to, I haven't quite gotten it down for how to convey how to do this to patients, you know, and it depends on what they're, if they're on a tablet or a laptop or on their phone. And then I, I have an Apple and I don't have an Android and I'm not really sure where the camera is on an Android, but I need to figure that out so that I can help my patient <laughs> get a better view. <laughs> and so uh, and so that's been interesting. And so I feel like that is in many ways safer than me actually, 
you know, opening up their mouth and taking a look. Yeah, for you, sounds like totally.、Um, that actually could be risky if you have to be so close to them and really、mm-hmm. need to have a closer look to their throat. And if the camera angle is right, that could be so much more clear.、Mm-hmm. With、uh, nowadays the technology, the camera actually are quite good. I'm actually surprised at how good the. I mean, some of them, of course, it depends on their internet connection、mm-hmm. and their phone and that sort of thing. But some, I'm just kind of amazed. I, I've been taking these pictures, even, you know, just、uh-huh. to show. I'll, I'll, I'll grab a screenshot sometimes, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and then I will share my screen and show the patient what I'm looking at,、uh-huh. and I'll show them like this is that dangly thing at the back of your throat, and it's really red, and this tells me that maybe a sleep apnea. And so then it's really interesting because I, I can't really do that when I'm in person looking、mm. at their airway. I can't really show them their own airway unless I have a mirror or I take a picture with my phone. But this way, I can share the screenshot during our visit, and then I delete it. And then you know,、mm-hmm. it's, it's been it's been interesting. And then they can also see、uh, the picture that I can see. And I think it gives it more legitimacy. Almost, I don't know. We've been experimenting a lot. You know, every day、yeah. it's different. Yeah. You know, sometimes my one platform won't work. It'll be really、uh-huh. laggy, and then I'll call on another one on my phone, and then I'll have to do this, and then I'll have to do that. <laughs> so, and every so often, I'll just have to. I'll be like, I'm just going to call you, and I'll just pick up my phone and call them. So it, it's been it's been really interesting, and I've enjoyed seeing how patients that I've known forever. Have adapted to it,、mm-hmm. you know, and, and even new patients. It's been really interesting to see how, you know, we we all do have to、um, figure out how to do this, right? Because、yeah. this, we have to figure out our new normal. Right, exactly. I I totally feel the same. And some some patients actually quite enjoy it, and myself kind of enjoy the exploration with them together, and figure out technical issues together. And、uh, try to because now it's telemedicine. Sometimes we can definitely do more. Like I see children also with children. Sometimes they're so excited to share their screen with me to share some <laughs> games they are playing, some YouTube videos with me, which is not、uh, happening in the in the office. <laughs> oh my gosh! How adorable is that, though? So they're more engaged. Yeah, in ways, many of them would love to show me their room, which means a lot for children. Want to share to a provider that their little secret, their their、uh, you know toys they love, they they want to share. They would love to talk. Some some parents are surprised because some parents told me their children actually never. Skype or video talk with any family member for more than fifteen minutes before, but they could stay in session for a whole forty-five or fifty minutes and don't want to stop.、Oh、well, we are still deliver some intervention in in a in a fun way. So it's interesting. <laughs> Isn't that? And I I find that it's kind of made us challenge, you know, why we do things, but also I think it makes us a little bit more creative、uh, in terms of. You know what we want to see, 
So I, I've kind of enjoyed that too. You know, I had a lady that showed me her legs and showed me how swollen they were. And she, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of guided her to, well, push your finger in and let's see what it looks like. And she can show it to me. And, and even just looking at the side of somebody's face, you can see if their jaw sits back a little bit and you're like, oh, you know what? That's a risk factor for sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Or you talk about um, like you share your screen and you review the data or you review this new cool thing that came out or they have their fitness tracker, right? And then you can share and you can ask to see their screen too. And so <laughs> it's, been, it's been this exploration that's been really, you know, I mean, yes, frustrating sometime, of course. You know, I have two kids that are distance learning and so they both have, you know, Google Hangouts mm. and then I'm trying to do telemedicine. So, you know, we've upgraded our internet twice <laughs> since oh. COVID happened. And, and I called and she's like, you cannot possibly be having problems. She's like, you're on the most like hugest bandwidth we have. And so <laughs> like, you can't possibly be having problems still. And I'm like, I am. And, and so, and so it's just that part's been interesting. You know, I have, I have these two dogs and so they will sometimes try to make a guest appearance you know and I'm trying to get them out of the way without letting on that I've got this giant dog that's trying to get in my lap (laughs) but I think most especially for patients that I've known you know I think it's it's a little bit different because they already know you and they kind of you know you have that relationship with them I did have a guy the other day that uh, I first met him on a telemedicine visit in his home. I met his grandkid and his dog, and we sent out a home test to him, and and he had sleep apnea. And so yesterday I saw him full circle. So I saw him before he had been diagnosed, and then I reviewed the test with him. I reviewed his CPAP information. You know, we answered questions, um, and he had lost ten pounds. Since he's been on CPAP, he felt pretty good. You know, he had his complaints about the mask and things like that, which I totally get. (laughs) But but it was was kind of, that was the first person that I had done that full circle with. And so I thought that was really kind of a milestone that we've been doing this long enough to have circled back around with our patients, you know, and to sort of check in with them to see how things are going. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing to to be able to see them and be with them this whole journey, mostly through telemedicine. Right. Yeah. Right. And for the first, so yesterday, I um I had a lady, and I've known her for years, but she uh, was having trouble with her machine. It was giving her a headache, and she'd already stopped wearing it. And so we kind of talked about this, you know, because she's in a higher risk group for COVID. Mm, mm. And we talked about, well, you know what, let's let, you know, you've already stopped using it. Let's maybe check in. And I've never been able to do this, but I can see her next week because mm. A, I have room in my clinic now and B, it can be, I don't have to feel guilty that I'm, you know, putting her in a car and asking her to drive. You know, right. she can pick up the phone and right. it takes, you know, like 15 minutes or 20 minutes and it's not a big deal. I can do it over lunch. <laughs> I, mean, it's kind of, I have never, I can't remember in the last decade ever being able to bring somebody back next week. <laughs> like that just never yeah. happens. And so that's been really interesting. You know, I'll have to see how she's doing next week, but that's been kind of cool. Yeah, give us a lot of flexibility and uh, much better patient care in a way 
that they don't have to schedule time to really come in. It's phone call away. There's a way to to figure that out. Right, That's amazing. Yeah. But I have, I do think that it has kind of uncovered these um, sort of those social determinants of health disparities. So I I have a patient um, that we've been trying to get in. She doesn't have a smartphone. She doesn't have a computer. She doesn't have anything like that. So we're just doing a regular phone call for her. And, and so you can definitely see that people who have access to this technology are their advantage, right? Mm-hmm. And and they get to play and they get to be part of this new paradigm. And, and the people who don't have access to it, it feels like almost like another door is being shut on them, mm-hmm. right? It's another thing they don't get to engage in. And it puts them further and further sort of on the outside of uh, what we're paying attention to. And right. that bothers me. You know, and I don't know. I've been looking into their companies that will mail out like a tablet and a therm- like a an ear therm- thermometer, and uh-huh. I can't remember something to look in your ear and nose or something. I don't remember, uh-huh. but they'll mail it to oh. somebody, and they'll have a little MiFi so that they can convert like cell signal into um, internet signal for the, for that device. Huh. And I mean, it's interesting. Right. And is yeah. that a way to do it? But then, you know, is that covered by insurance? Like how, how do you, how do you get over all those barriers? Right. And how do you still help your patients? Yeah. All those barriers feels like are uh, something all of the professionals are trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to do good patient care um, and do all this testing, all this basic examination done without seeing them in person and make it also easier for, especially I would say older patients or patients have some cognitive challengement, mm-hmm. a challenge. It, it's going to be hard for them to master all these new things and how to use things and how to follow instructions. Well, especially if they don't have that support from, you know, somebody that can help them, right. you know, and it all goes back down to that, you know, who are the, the people that seem to do better? It's people who have support of some sort, right? If it's a spouse mm-hmm. or a friend or a whoever, mm-hmm. and yet when you're by yourself and you're trying to navigate through some of this, and, and I think it's just, it's been so interesting that I've had some older people that do really, really well with telemedicine. You know, they are all mm-hmm. over it. And mm-hmm. then I've had some younger people that struggled and that was so surprising to me. I did not anticipate that. You know, we have done telemedicine for, you know, like 10 years. Um, But it was very sort of formal where our staff would go out to where, you know, a town where the patient is. And then we Uh would see like all all the patients from that town that day that had an appointment. Uh And so there physically was somebody from our office that would greet them and take their vitals and kind of have that contact with the patient. Mm-hmm. And so this has been different than that. Mm. <laughs> so that's been interesting. Yeah. You know, but um, even some of the lessons that we learned from doing telemedicine, you know, I've still had to learn and adapt, even though I feel like I've got this, you know, previous experience with telemedicine, mm-hmm. this still made us evaluate what we're doing. And um, do I really need to have this bit of data that I can only get in person and, or from my nurse, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so it's another, it's another iteration where we're trying to figure it out. And yet you, you know, above you, you always check in with your patient and is this working for you? I mean, it's, 
it's less important if it's working for me. It's more important that my patient's getting something out of it because I'm pretty adaptable, right? <laughs> like, okay, this isn't working. Let's try this. Okay, let's try FaceTime. Okay, let's try whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't care. Let's, let's, you know, whatever you want to do is fine with me. But I, you know, I don't want to alienate patients if they don't have access to technology. You know, I don't want them to feel sort of scared mm-hmm. to do it. And so we're trying to make it as easy as possible. Yeah, yeah. So happy to hear that you're trying, you guys are trying so hard. Um, and hopefully, this will get easier and easier. And a lot of uh, new ways will come out to really help people with different levels familiar uh, familiarity with the technology. And one thing I want to ask you is, I know you are hosting actually a new podcast about sleep, which is very, very exciting. It is exciting. And I am the first to admit that um, I am just trying to learn. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we um, with the uh, AASM, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, they do a really nice job with a lot of education. So they had an education committee. Um, ASM committees are volunteer physicians. And once a month, they get together. So for example, I had a technology and I was chair of the technology committee. And there's an education committee and there's a public safety committee. And there's tons of these committees. Mm. And so the education committee um, did these, these interviews with different people in the sleep field. And so we are highlighting those interviews in, um, in this first season of podcast. And we're trying to learn, <laughs> at least I am. Mm-hmm. The ASM folks, they know how to do all this stuff, but I am learning. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, what is interesting for people? You know, what do people want to hear? Mm-hmm. Uh, what format should it take? You know, should it be more um, interviewing people within the sort of ASM orbit? Or should we go outside of mm-hmm. people within the ASM and really explore and engage with other people in the sleep community? You know, research people and, and, and technologists and industry, right? Like, mm-hmm. like fitness trackers and all of that. So I am actually really excited to learn from you <laughs> because <laughs> we, we have, uh, we've recorded about five podcasts. Oh, great. And so, but mostly it's highlighting uh, the work that the education committee has already done. Mm. And so then the next season will be what we have kind of, we'll take those lessons mm. and then we'll try to kind of turn it into what we envision moving forward. Oh, great. So um, is that a podcast designed for sleep professionals or um, professionals in healthcare field? Uh, is there uh, like um, certain ideas about is that for general public or more professionals? So you're right. It is geared towards sleep professionals. But one mm-hmm. thing that I've learned is that mm-hmm. a lot of our patients are really really smart about sleep. Mm. And so I wouldn't say exclusively for, for sleep professionals. I, I, um, I've had some really enlightened conversations with, with patients and with late, you know, people outside of the sleep world Mm -hmm. that have this impressive knowledge about sleep. And so we welcome people to listen, you know, if they can get something out of it, great. I think the more people that talk about sleep, I think that's a win for all of us. <laughs> and so yes. if there's, you know, if there's 
you know, 20 podcasts that talk about sleep. I'm like, that's fantastic. Maybe people will start to really kind of understand this message about how important sleep is, right? And what we need to do. If we can be part of that, we are Mm -hmm. totally thrilled to be part of that. And if we can reach out to sleep professionals and expand our reach a little bit, you know, for anybody that is willing to listen to us, we would welcome that. Yeah, that's awesome. So if people are curious to check out this new podcast, how can they find this podcast? So it's called Talking Sleep. Um, It is available on the AASM website, aasm.org, if you're a member. Uh, It's also available anywhere you look for podcasts. Great. Yeah, I will put the uh, links to the website. So whoever listened to this episode, listened to our conversation, will have access to to, we'll be able to find that podcast and download it to listen. Also, if people, you know, are curious about your practice, they want to read more or they're local in your area, want to go to your practice to see you, how can they find you? Oh, huh. Well, <laughs> I would love to tell you we have a robust website, but we don't. <laughs> but we are the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Um, if you're looking for a lab um, outside of Fargo, Medbridge Healthcare has, um, has labs uh, in many, I think, 22 different states. And so that would be a good resource. And that one actually has a website, <laughs> medbridgehealthcare.com. Um, but no, my, my clinic is just small. It's just me. We've got, I've got uh, my clinic manager and we call ourselves a dynamic duo. And uh, that's kind of how we, we, we have a very small practice and we spend time with our patients and we really try to be patient advocates. Great. Yeah. Great to know with website or just the name, you know, local people can, can find it. That's all very helpful. And I think it's very helpful for me. I also learn a lot from our conversation. I'm sure the audience will to learn more about different sleep disorders and under COVID, what we can do with the testing, with the treatment. That's awesome. So all this website you talk about and the, the name of your practice, I will put them all on the on the show notes so people will have access to those. That's fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Kosla, for your time to be on the show, sharing all this expertise with our audience. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. Hopefully our conversation can inspire you, give you more ideas about a sleep center and sleep study under COVID. So if you find uh, if you want to find more information about Dr. Kosla's practice or you're curious about the new uh, podcast hosted by AASM, you can find that information on our show note at deepintosleep.co slash episode slash 040. Again, if you have any questions, welcome to email me or leave a message on our website, and I will try to get back to you as soon as possible. If you have any other topics you're curious about, you really want to listen to, also welcome to let me know. Thank you very much for listening to our episode today. I am Ishan, and I will see you next week. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently. And there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. 
Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia.